you know, once upon a time, you had a handful of TV channels and a handful of newspaper. But now between Twitter, Facebook, Substack, you can essentially curate your own news and curate your own reality, right? Because if the world you're living in is Ann Coulter and the world I'm living in is Michael Moore, we're going to be having very separate conversations. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Anafi Wahed, is the founder and CEO of The Flip Side. The Flip Side is an aspiring media company that's built an audience of 250,000 readers of a newsletter that provides two sides of a key news story each day. Anafi is now seeking to expand that into a social network. Anafi and I had a good conversation about her career path, her enterprise, and what it does, the intersection of news, media, partisanship, and politics, and what she's trying to build in the space. You should listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Anafi Wahed and The Flip Side. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Anafi, uh, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Anafi. I'm the founder and CEO of The Flipside. Having worked in finance for several years after college, I uh, quit my job to go work for the Hillary campaign in 2016. And since then, I've been trying to bridge the gap between liberals and conservatives. Where'd you grow up? I was born in Bangladesh and I moved to the States in 1998. So uh, in the third grade, uh, and I grew up in Queens. Queens is where my wife began her journey. What was Queens like for you? Very cool. Uh, Queens was a lovely place to grow up. I mean, it's the most diverse county in the nation. So, you know, I could walk from the Egyptian neighborhood to the Brazilian neighborhood to the Bangladeshi neighborhood. The world was at my fingertips. I didn't even know it at the time. To me, that was normal. You must have been a, a very good student if you went off to Bryn Mawr College. What took you there? I was not, according to my mother, I, I was just good enough uh, to speak <laughs> by. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, yes, uh, I've been blessed with uh, general aptitude. And I was a nerd. You know, I liked learning. I wasn't an A-plus student. I was, you know, an A-minus student. Uh, but I, I genuinely enjoyed high school. I think unlike a lot of other people who talk about their high school experiences having been traumatizing, but I went to nerd school, uh, even in high school. So I had a ball uh, just being around other people who also enjoyed learning. And that's, that, that's just how I've always been. What was Bryn Mawr like for you? Bryn Mawr was a, an odd adjustment. Uh, it's a women's college. It's a little bit outside of uh, Philadelphia. So 
it was a it was a culture shock in many ways. I went from uh, you know living in New York City and having access to the subway at all times. I took the subway to school starting in seventh grade to suddenly being in you know uh, not a small town but a medium sized town, very quiet with crickets and the women's college culture can be a little bit of a culture shock if if you're not expecting it. But starting second semester freshman year, I could not imagine going anywhere else. I've made the bestest friends that I'm still very close to today, even though we're spread across the country. And it was an amazing experience. You came out and, as you said, you did stuff in the financial world for a bit. What did you learn there that, that is relevant to what you're doing now? Oh, yeah. So I started my career in, in the finance world, actually, as a bank regulator at the FDIC. It was a little bit of an ego trip because I was 22 years old, but I would walk into a bank and, you know, the the 50-year-old CEO would make me coffee because I'm a regulator and he wanted to get a good rating. Um, so it was, it was like a very interesting place to start my career. And then I moved on to Ernst & Young uh, to do consulting. So going from the federal government into the private sector definitely taught me the value of regulations, uh, right, to be able to see it from uh, both sides was a really interesting experience. Um, I also got my CFA charter in the meantime, which was a lot of studying and, and y- just years of grinding. That, that was not fun. That's certified financial analyst or something like that? What is CFA? Chartered financial analyst. People like to either complain about the private sector, oh, big business is all evil, or they complain about the government, oh, government employees are lazy. I saw some of the most brilliant minds in the federal government. I also saw some people I wouldn't trust to manage a candy store, uh, you know, directing big teams at global banks. You know, there's talented people everywhere and lazy people everywhere. And um, neither government nor big business is bad. It's just who's in it and what are the incentives and Incentives are very powerful. You can get good people to do bad things and bad people to do good things if you have the right structures and regulations and incentives in place. That was my biggest takeaway. That sounds like an important one. Was it a big decision to quit your job and start working for the Hillary campaign? It was and it wasn't. There were a lot of confounding factors. I literally quit my job two weeks after I received the CFA charter that I had worked four years for. And I think I only got to that finish line because I have a type A personality and I wanted to finish it. And I didn't want anyone to say that I quit finance because it was too hard. And so I got the charter and I realized that there was nothing left to work for. Um, It was almost as if I had made it to the mountaintop and then I turned around and I said, okay, now what? And nothing that was ahead of me, you know, becoming manager at Ernst & Young or, you know, going to become a VP at Morgan Stanley was that appealing. And at the same time, it was the summer of 2016. Like a lot of liberals who grew up in New York City and went to very progressive colleges like Bryn Mawr, I was very confused about how Trump was the nominee for the GOP and I wanted to know why. And so I went to New Hampshire and I knocked on doors for four months and made phone calls. I was a field organizer and learned the whole world of campaigning. Um, It was intense because I'd never even volunteered for a campaign before. I didn't bother to vote in 2012. I knew Obama was going to win. And I I said, okay, well, whatever, I'll get to it. And then I didn't. So it just felt like I was, you know, faced with this whole new world that I had no idea existed and being in New Hampshire, being part of campaigns, etc., Engaging with people at the doors and so on in New Hampshire during a big election like that, and New Hampshire was pretty close, you have to have learned quite a bit about sort of how Trump was being received, how Hillary was being received. What surprised you the most? 
Well, the first thing I would say is, and this is not a knock on any particular person or Hillary Clinton as a candidate or whatever, but the talking points that the campaign gave us weren't working. I would get to the door and they would say, oh, I just saw on Fox News XYZ and I would have no idea what they're talking about. I knocked on someone's door and I'm, you know, I've got all my talking points. And she says, hey, you know, I can't afford the property tax and they're about to foreclose on my home. Does Hillary Clinton have a plan for that? And I couldn't answer her, right? Like these were real people with real problems. And here we are, you know, talking about the first female presidency. They don't care. They want someone who will solve their problems. Not to say that gender equality isn't important, but that's not what's at the forefront of people's minds. They don't care that, you know, Trump tweeted this, that on the other thing or what he said about what group because they have more pressing needs at that moment. And that was my first realization um, that the Democratic Party has a lot of work to do. And also that we have a lot of work to do as a country, right? Like, I've, I'm somewhat well-traveled. I'm very comfortable, you know, in Bangkok or Paris, but I was in rural New Hampshire and felt like a fish out of water, but these are my countrymen. So uh, what does that say about where we are as a nation and how well-connected we feel to each other? Well, it sounds like there's quite an intersection between the news that people were receiving, not just their problems, but the information they were getting from places like Fox and, and elsewhere that affected the politics, that affected your job trying to canvas and so on. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That's why I started the flip side to try to bridge that gap because, you know, once upon a time you had a handful of TV channels and a handful of newspaper, but now between Twitter, Facebook, Substack, you can essentially curate your own news and curate your own reality, right? Because if the world you're living in is Ann Coulter and the world I'm living in is Michael Moore, we're going to be having very separate conversations. How did you receive the Trump defeat of Hillary? There were a lot of tears. Um, it, it was not pleasant. In, in some ways, I mean, I quit my job and, you know, moved my life for four months because I thought there was a chance that Trump could win. All of my friends, my boss, everyone thought I was crazy. They were like, why would you do this? And I said, well, first, I'm curious, but also, too, this guy might have something. But at the same time, I genuinely thought we would win in the end, and we didn't. And that was a really hard realization. And at that moment, I decided that I needed to do something about it. That's when the wheels of the, the flip side uh, began. Well, what is the founding story then for the flip side? The date I have on it from you is something like February of 2017. So that's immediately post-election. What was happening? It was me and, and a friend of mine at the time trying to make sense of what happened. So I think a lot of people retreated into their corners. And instead, we said, what are conservatives reading? And we went into deep dive. We started reading Fox and Breitbart, who was very influential at the time. Um, the publication isn't as influential now, but at the time they were. And everything in between, right? National Review, the Wall Street Journal op-ed pages, um, The Federalist, uh, Spectator, what have you. And then we said, oh, our friends have no idea that this entire world exists, right, outside of the New York Times. So let's give them this world. And the first newsletter went to, I think, 16 of my friends. And I said, hey, what do you think? They said, oh, this is interesting. And, you know, I found my co-founder a few months later. It all started to take a life of its own. So I found a new job after uh, the Hillary campaign, and I finally decided to take the flip side full time and focus on it full time um, in 2019. So it took a, a little bit of uh, time before I realized that I had something. So it sounds like it started out as a newsletter solely, and that was kind of covering both sides of the news every day. How did it start out? 
we used to select a couple of topics, but now we only select one topic and we actually go in and read 20, 30, 40, 50 op-eds on that topic. And then we find excerpts and data points that we think are convincing and we curate it in such a way that the newsletter becomes a self-contained digest in and of itself. What I think makes us special and differentiates us from a lot of AI aggregators is that we have each side read the other. So I go read the conservative side, my conservative co-founder reads my side and says, you know what, this argument is not going to make sense to the right. And let me tell you why and vice versa. Tell me about your co-founder. His name is Jahan, Jahan Varisco. He's one of the smartest people I know. Um, he graduated from Chicago and has a master's in public policy uh, from there as well. Worked for several years at the New York Consumer Bureau, a civilian bureau. I always get this mixed up. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, he's, he lives in the world of public policy and is a news junkie, much like myself. We're very different uh, in our political views, but very similar in that we're both very analytical. So you start kind of the two of you curating a topic. Is it every day? Uh, Monday through Friday. What's the trajectory of the readership? You said, you know, we got 16 people at the beginning. Yeah. What happens over time? We grew to 25,000 people, I think, uh, via word of mouth. I had a couple op-eds published here and there. Um, but really, it was just friends sharing it with other friends, with their family members. And then in 2019... We raised our first round of funding and were able to have paid ads, which was a whole game changer. Oh, my gosh, having money makes all the difference. <laughs> and so we, in one year, we were able to grow tenfold from 25,000 subscribers to now 250,000 subscribers. Our website looks much more professional than it did. And yeah, we've been able to just do, do a lot with both the mix of paid ads, but also continuing to have people just share it with their friends and family. We have, you know, something called an ambassador program where if you have five referrals, you get stickers, you have 25, you get a mug, the usual uh, marketing ways. How much money did you raise? Uh, we raised a half a million from a single investor who's, who's been amazing and, and so supportive. Well, tell me about that person. Oh, man, he's actually in, in war with the New York Times right now. Um, his name is Seth Dillon. He's the CEO of Babylon Bee, which is a satire news site. He's been reading the flip side for years. And so when we were introduced, it you know just felt like a natural fit. It was so funny. I called him, let's see, was it January when I said, hey, you know, we're taking on this whole new uh, project, which I'm very excited to talk to you about, by the way, of, of the platform where readers can actually engage with our content, engage with each other. We want to build an alternative to Twitter and Facebook uh, for political discourse, which some might say is quite ambitious. But Seth just said, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. You're well positioned. I support you. You know, Tell me what you need. And that's just the greatest thing a founder can hear from, from their angel investor. It's an amazing thing to hear. And especially from someone who has some expertise in finding an audience online in a sort of somewhat related field, even if it's uh, not the same kind of uh, outlook on the news. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know, he uh, has an interest in, in media. He reads a lot of news. He has a couple uh, media publications that are very different from the flip side, but in the same general political space. So it's great that he's been so supportive and uh, gave us that uh, initial investment to really, you know, en enable us to hit the ground running. You're saying investment. Does that mean that you're a for-profit enterprise? Yes. we. Uh, it's funny. Uh, we are a C-Corp now. We're debating uh, switching to a public benefit charter, but we're getting mixed reviews from investors about that. So stay tuned. <laughs> what involvement has Seth had beyond the money? Has he 
provided other advice or connections or has it been pretty hands-off? He's been pretty hands-off. Um, I mean, he's there when we need him. We've uh, leaned on him when we launched our uh, premium subscription because Babylon B also has a premium subscription. And so, you know, we uh, brainstormed different ideas about how to increase conversion, etc. He's into the marketing side as sort of his career prior to becoming an investor. So um, he's been really helpful on that front. And again, just an open book whenever we needed him. I've been on the Babylon B podcast, um, which was really fun. Yeah. 250,000 people reading it. Do you have a sense of who they are and why they're reading it? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is they come from literally from all 50 states. I've shipped mugs to Hawaii and Alaska, which is very expensive, to Utah, to Wyoming, um, which is really great. They tend to be ages 25 to 54, uh, though, of course, we have readers above and below that age range. They tend to be well-educated and affluent, which is great from the fact that we're a private company and we have advertising on our website. So an educated, affluent audience is very valuable to advertisers. But that's, from a mission perspective, something we're working on to make sure that we can reach uh, an even wider audience. I would say our biggest ambassadors tend to fall into one of three camps. The first camp is the, hey, I just want to know what's going on in politics, but I don't want to go on Twitter and I don't want to spend forever reading 20 op-eds. The flip side is a shortcut, saves me time. Great, la-di-da. The second group are the people who have someone in their life with whom they disagree with politically, whether it's their husband who voted for Trump or their son who came back from college, a liberal, or you know their neighbor, coworker, uh, someone with whom they disagree with but want to have better conversations with. So the flip side is a game changer for them, which is actually how the idea for our platform that we're building now came about. So many people email us to say, oh my gosh, I'm using the flip side to start these conversations. We both read it and now you know we're able to have much better conversations. We're no longer shouting at each other. I actually get where they're coming from, et cetera, et cetera. The third group, I would say that are, uh, our biggest cheerleaders are People in the education or civic dialogue spaces, whether it's Braver Angels or Living Room Conversations, uh, again, we're serving as a starting point for uh, folks in their groups. And then in the education space, teachers and professors who want their students to read a diverse set of viewpoints, but don't know where to guide them. And so when they discover Flipside, they love it, you know, whether it's uh, journalism professors or teachers who have a debate club that they're moderating or, or just teachers who say our students want to break out of their bubble, but they don't know how. Can you characterize your philosophy of the content choices that you make? If you're going to do two sides of an argument, there's a lot of different ways to do that, right? There's take two sort of rabid opposing views. How do you pick the topics? How do you pick the people to excerpt from or to kind of show? All great questions. So when we're thinking about this, there are three possible approaches very broadly. One, we can focus on the politicians themselves. So what you know, Senator McConnell is saying, what President Biden is saying. Two is we can focus on the media, right? What is the New York Times op-ed page saying, what is the Wall Street Journal op-ed page saying? And the third is the voters, what are pollsters saying, the focus groups, et cetera. So we've decided early on that we're going to focus on that second group. We're going to quote, you know, polling data and and what the politicians are saying, but it's really the, the media landscape that we're interested in curating. So what are the media commentators and influencers saying? So that's our first lens. The second lens is, once we determine that, it's then determining the Overton window. 
within that, right? Because obviously, there's all kinds of bloggers who have all kinds of thoughts and ideas, etc. Um, we take a very firm stance on misinformation, which is that we don't talk about it. Um, we don't give it oxygen, we just ignore it unless it's not possible because it's taken over so much of the conversation, in which case we debunk it. Outside of that, we then start to say, okay, what is being talked about on social media? Uh, what is happening in the White House, right? Because if the Biden administration is launching out a new program, then that's something we do want to cover, even if that's not trending on Twitter. So it's a mix of making sure we're relevant for the average person, but also trying to focus on substantive issues. For example, we cover foreign policy uh, a little bit more than I think other publications, because we're not that interested in what Kanye West has to say about politics. So the topic choice in and of itself is a bias, right? The first two years of the Trump administration, half our team wanted to cover the Mueller investigation and the other half wanted to cover the booming economy. I'm going to let you guess which one was which. Because we have that one topic, we also take a bipartisan view that we want to cover topics that are important to both sides uh, on and off. After that, it's reading all the op-eds and saying, oh, you know, this data point is really interesting. And then this author uses that data point to say X, Y, Z, which is also interesting. It's sometimes hard, to be honest, because each person is writing for their own audience, right? Whereas we are taking the opposite view. We want to find excerpts that will resonate with people on the other side, not within the echo chamber itself. So sometimes it's not ideal. And sometimes we wish we were writers ourselves, but we take a very hard stance on that too. No opinions from us. We're just curators. We're acting as, to the extent possible, you know, neutral arbiters uh, coming from our own biases and trying to filter out the fake news, the inflammatory news, and giving you thoughtful perspectives from the two sides. I think the pattern of news consumption and the trends are not in the direction of your type of content. Correct. Right? The inflammatory and the misinformation and different things like that seem to be doing better than, you know, what you might get from Reuters or AP or something that is much more level and That's unfortunately very true. Yeah. Right. This is one of those instances where consumer stated preference and revealed preference are wildly divergent, right? So people always say they want unbiased news, but when you look at their behavior, what they're clicking on, what they're spending time reading, it's the exact opposite. Right. It also makes for a trickiness in a business if you're chasing something that is counter to what people's natural behavior is. When you are looking for an audience does that mean that there's only a narrow slice of people that are potential readers? Or does that mean that you have to convert people in their behavior? How do you think about that connection that you have between what you want to do and what's wanted by a market? We take a very less is more approach. So whenever someone says, I love the flip side, I just wish you covered more topics. We say, you say that, but that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> we know that you have a limited, you know, mental, emotional bandwidth for reading things you disagree with. And that's what we're catering to. So even though people say, I want more, I want more, we, we push back and we say, no, we're spending 10 hours giving you a five minute read because we know you can only handle a five minute read. Um, my favorite uh, feedback I got recently, it was a one sentence email. You're the only liberal rag I can stand to read. 
And I thought that's going to be our new uh, tagline, right? So we have a lot of strong partisans who say that, you know, the flip side helps them avoid Twitter while still understanding what's happening on the other side. Uh, again, we're filtering, we're acting as a gatekeeper to give you the actual thoughtful perspective so you can actually understand what other people in the country are thinking without having to venture into that, you know, sort, sort of jungle that is the current media landscape. You're talking about feedback. What have you gleaned about how readers have changed as a result of reading behavior change that you've brought on? We do two kinds of surveys. Uh, one is the first 30 days you get a survey. Hey, how are we doing? Are you meeting our expectations? Um, and then I periodically send out a note with just an update of what we're up to. And then I say, hey, how are we doing? L- let us know. And obviously, anyone who unsubscribes, if they leave a comment, we're reading that as well. Liberals and conservatives, uh, general group, obviously, I'm generalizing, uh, the stickiness of the two groups tend to be very different. And how we acquire them and, and talk to them is different. Conservatives, as soon as I say, hey, I'm trying to, you know, undo media bias, they sign on immediately. They say, oh, my gosh, yes, I've been looking for you. Um, But they're also very quick to jump off. So the second they they start to think that we might be leaning left, they unsubscribe and they're gone. Whereas with liberals, it's the opposite. We have to do a lot more work to convince them that we are legitimate, that we are vetting the articles, that we're not showcasing false information. We're not creating a false equivalency by giving, you know, a platform to anti-vaxxers, what have you. And then once they finally do sign on, they tend to be more sticky. So even if they sometimes think we lean uh, right, they will say, okay, no, I'll give it a chance, you know, what have you. Uh, What's really funny is we take a left-right format. So The left is on the left, the right is on the right. But on mobile, because it's two different columns, the left column shows up first and the right column shows up second. We got complaints from both sides. Uh, Conservatives did not think it was fair that we always led with the conservative side because that meant that was our hidden bias. Whereas conservatives thought that it was unfair that the left always got to have the last word. And so now, even though from a design standpoint, it makes no sense, we alternate. So on day one, it will be left, then right. And on day two, it will be right, then left. Um, So those are all the strange ways in which... uh, you know, we've, we've had to adjust and, and make suboptimal decisions because of the partisan lens through which people view the world, unfortunately. What motivates you to do this? That I am constantly learning. Even though I've been steeped in conservative news and, you know, run in conservative circles now, um, as well as liberal circles, I'm still finding uh, different things that I wouldn't have thought of. And, uh, you know, even yesterday, my co-founder and I had a robust conversation uh, on gun control. And I didn't realize, you know, some of the data I take for granted was actually wrong in my head. And he pointed me to data that corrected my misconceptions. So uh, that's what keeps me going. I, like I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nerd at the end of the day. So it sounds like you've changed some by this process of reading the other side collaborating with your conservative co-founder, I'm sure getting feedback from your audience. How have you changed? Absolutely. So from a, you know, the CEO of a media and now a tech company, not having a background in media and tech company, it's definitely been a learning process. And, you know, I'm talking to PhD data scientists and just trying to keep up and um, talking to folks, you know, who have given TED Talks on this topic of civic dialogue and just constantly learning from others. From a political standpoint, I've definitely softened my previous 
strongly held positions a, a lot, and even changed some of my deeply held perspectives um, on some things. And mostly just realized how little I knew, you know, even as a college graduate who was by all metrics successful and, and curious and read media, there's just so much we don't know. So the, the first thing I say whenever I look at polling data is, how many of these people actually understand what's happening, right? Um, I mean, I don't, and I literally read the news for a living. So it's just been a, a wonderfully humbling experience in, in, in all myriad of ways. <laughs> how would, do you think your co-founder, your conservative co-founder, would answer that same question, how he has changed? I think he would say, and, and he's actually said this on interviews before, where, where he's learned to appreciate the human aspect. He comes at everything from a very analytical, data-centric perspective. And I always say, yes, but think about the actual person in that position, right? You're pointing to this data to say, oh, only 14 people, but imagine being one of those 14 people. So I I think there's a bit of empathy uh, from learning about different perspectives and uh, me forcing him to read uh, different publications that actually outline the lived experiences of different people, Um, has really broadened his view and uh, how he thinks about uh, policy in general. At least I hope so. That's what he said one time. (laughs) (laughs) When you think about the current media news landscape, what do you think is wrong with it? Oh, gosh. This is like an hours-long conversation. Um, I think, unfortunately, there are no easy answers. That's the first thing I would say, right? It's really easy to yell at Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, and yes, they have a lot of, you know, uh, shortcomings. But even as we're starting to design this platform for our audience and thinking about how we're going to prioritize user comments and how we're going to deal with fake news, these are hard problems to solve. And what I try to say when I'm giving a talk at at colleges and uh, schools is clickbait exists for a reason. We are a capitalist society. If investigative journalism sold, if unbiased news sold, you bet somebody would be selling it. But clickbait exists precisely because people continue to click on them. So there's a whole lot of things we have to do as a nation. We need civic education. We need media literacy. We just need an overall better educated populace. We also need to have more things like NPR and PBS and fewer things like Infowars and Huffington Post. Um, again, not to create a false equivalency, but there's just certain kind of structures. But those things are hard. And as as someone who's trying to fundraise in this environment right now, you know, every, everyone says, "Oh my gosh, Anafi, you're doing such a wonderful thing. This is so amazing. How can you help?" And I'm like, "Dude, you're a billionaire. You can open your wallet and put your money where your mouth is, right?" Like words of affirmation aren't going to pay the rent, aren't going to pay the salaries of engineers we need to hire. So I would say that there's a lot of amazing grassroots work happening, whether it's, uh, you know, people like me taking the reins or the nonprofit organizations like Living Room Conversations and Braver Angels that need more funding, that need uh, more attention from the influencers um, that claim to, you know, want better discourse, but aren't doing enough to uh, actually help in those efforts. So how are you doing as a company? Well, we are ramen profitable. Right now, we're able to pay, you know, myself and my co-founder salaries. We're able to, um, you know, pay for all of our admin work. You're saying enough to 
to feed yourself on ramen. Yeah. Exactly. Um, we, uh, we have a premium subscription. We have a wonderful group of premium subscribers. I think I, we're nearing 1,400 or maybe just past 1,400 paid subscribers. And we also have some advertising on the, on the newsletter. So again, you know, ramen profitability, which, you know, as a media company in, in 2021, isn't half bad. Better than losing a lot of money. <laughs> exactly. You have alluded a couple times to the fact that you're trying to raise money. And I believe I also noticed that you're hiring. What is it that you're trying to do? So we have this crazy idea that Facebook and Twitter might not be the best place for nuanced conversation about politics. We have, on the one hand, this wonderful bipartisan audience across the country, across the political spectrum, not just Republicans and uh, Democrats, but also libertarians and independents. And someone wrote to us in late October, they said, I've never voted before, but I started reading the flip side. And now I finally felt informed enough to vote uh, in this election, which was really amazing for us. Talk about impact. We think that we can take this bipartisan audience and turn it into a community where they're just not passively uh, reading our content, but also actively participating in the conversation. And the way we're thinking about that is to uh, basically do the opposite of what Facebook and Twitter does, uh, which is how can we have user engagement metrics that that isn't going to incentivize inflammatory content. So on this platform someday, hopefully this year when it's launched, when uh, you sign on, you'll be asked uh, which political uh, side you're on. And, you know, we'll have different options, far left, far right, uh, center left, center right. So that when if you, Nathaniel, who lean left, post a comment and somebody who leans right upvotes that comment, that's going to be prioritized over other comments. So the goal will be to get upvotes from people on the other side, which will encourage people to write persuasively rather than in an inflammatory manner. We're also not going to have a blank text box. We're going to have a little bit more structure so that if you're sharing a personal anecdote, okay, that's one comment box. But if you're sharing a factual claim, then you need to link to an external site that validates that claim. So all of these things what in Silicon Valley is termed friction and is supposed to be the enemy of good is actually what we're trying to build, thoughtful friction, so that we encourage our users to be more thoughtful and engage more thoughtfully. Since maybe 1999, 2000, I've watched startups in that general area of sort of political social network, raise money, launch things, and then die one after another. The road is littered with the carcasses of uh, attempts like this. Absolutely. Um, and I'm sure that you're aware of, you know, some of the big ones like Brigade or, you know, but they were Voter.com. There's just been a lot of them over the years. It's very tricky. I think sometimes it's been done by people who weren't the right fit, who had the, if we build it, they'll come attitude rather than sort of very carefully bootstrapping something in conjunction with audience feedback. The fact that you've been small and have had a, a long runway of learning to get to 250,000 with a fairly simple model and to get to that ramen profitability you talked about, I think that places you in an unusually better situation than some of the other people who've just thrown money at the problem. But it's still kind of daunting, I think, to try to scale this up. But what do you think are the biggest challenges 
to getting to, to where you want to go? And why do you have a different angle on it? Absolutely. Great question. So I would say we differ in three very important ways from previous efforts. One, we're starting with an audience of 250,000. Our open rate two days ago was 50%. The day before that, it was 46%. Our audience is extremely engaged and they're ready for a change. So starting with that subscriber base is definitely a leg up. Two, we're not going to have only user-generated content. We started with content. We are curators by trade. So there's not going to be the proliferation of fake news because simply we just haven't done that. Um, that's not what we do. Um, Medium, uh, which has raised hundred million, over $100 million from investors, which is run by a billionaire, is recommending erotica to the POTUS account, right? Whereas our team of volunteer contributors have obviously never done that. So um, our human curators, the fact that we have a structured process for how we curate our content and our audience base are two things that all automatically set us up to do better than these other platforms that have led with technologists and algorithms only. The third thing I would say is I am different. I am not somebody who's playing with VR headsets. I am not somebody who's running an entirely different company at the same time as I'm running Twitter. I am not someone that's going to say, okay, we'll just pay a bunch of journalists and they'll go and do it. I understand the landscape in a way that they won't. And because I am a woman of color who's been on TV and who's been the subject of, you know, minor threats. I understand the importance of online content moderation in a way that they never will. We're starting with content moderation. We're starting with user metrics uh, that are going to value persuasive and thoughtful comments rather than building the platform and thinking about all of these things as an afterthought. The fundraising is one common stumbling block for scaling something out like this, separating people from their money. It seems to be easy for a very small group of people, but generally it's tough. What's happening there with with that for you? In some ways, it, it's going really well. We actually just sent out a letter to our premium subscribers to say, hey, we're raising money. And I've already had uh, two people who are essentially committed uh, to giving us small funds. So uh, again, our audience itself is proving time and again how valuable they are. What I have to deal with is a lot of pessimism. And I just continue to talk about the things we're building and talk about all of the work we've done to date. And I'm very optimistic that someday, you know, we'll find the right person who's going to just make that bet. But uh, it's funny, I alluded to that uh, conversation about public benefits, because even in this very, you know, sort of non-political conversation uh, about investment, uh, the investors who lean left say, hey, you should really think about becoming a public benefit corp. It would look great. It'd be great PR. You know, it would really help us sort, sort of add that to the portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas investors who lean conservative say, oh, my gosh, that's just PR. Why would you bother to do that? Why would you ever be anything other than a Delaware C-Corp? Um, so it's really funny the ways in which partisanship affects every aspect of what we do. Um, and again, because we want every step to be bipartisan, uh, you know, we want to make sure we have a healthy, diverse group of people at every stage, whether it's the founding team, the contributor team, the advisory team, the investing team. Um, that's something we're dealing with on top of all of the usual stresses of being a startup trying to raise money. 
who are your best targets? Or like when you think about who would you want to fund you, who are you approaching or who would you like to be connected to? On the one hand, I've been so heartened by the folks who've been with us for years. You know, one of the people who essentially committed to some amount of money yesterday said, hey, look, I'm not a millionaire, but I really support you and I'm behind this. You know, send me the term sheet when you have it. So that's been really heartening. But the people I thought would be easy to convince, the actual multimillionaires and billionaires who are going on TV, who are writing op-eds, who are have their companies send out press releases about how much they care about civic discourse. They're asking, oh my gosh, how soon before you're actually profitable? Is this actually going to work? I don't know. Where's your MVP? Where's your traction? And at the end of the day, you know, they need to put their money where their mouth is. Do you think that like the people who focused on impact investing are a good fit? I think I am being a little bit harsh. Part of the problem is they're focused on aggressively progressive initiatives, right? So they are focused on specifically democratic policies. And so when they see a a bipartisan startup, they say, this is great, but my first priority is to make sure these democratic policies get passed. So uh, on the one hand, I understand their hesitance um, because they feel like, The country is in a crisis and there are more compelling ways to spend their money. I get it. But at the same time, we can't think in the moment. We need to also plan for the long term. The way you continue to be in crisis is to always act like you're in crisis and not building for the long term. So even though I have progressive values as well, I also know that the best way for progressive values to succeed 10, 20, 50 years from now is to get other people to join our effort rather than cramming it down their throats. How much do you need and how would you spend it? Um, We're starting small. We're raising a million dollars to build an MVP for this platform that we have in mind. And we're hiring probably three engineers and uh, one more full-time staff for our editorial team. So it's it's not a whole lot. We we think we can do a lot with that uh, one million. Because again, we have very clear ideas um, about what we want to build, and we're careful about building enough so that users feel like it's a you know an engaging experience, but not so much that we've over-engineered and it's confusing, and you know half of it will be discarded because users just don't like it. Can you get more out of uh, the Babylon B fellow? <laughs> um. I, I think so. I mean, you know, w- once we have a few investors, I mean, he's been so supportive. I fully expect him to uh, participate in this round uh, to some extent. What would you want people to know about the flip side that hasn't come up so far? Part of our marketing is to come off as um, non-threatening. We put a lot of work into designing a mascot uh, that's, you know, kind of adorable. And we have bright blue and red colors because we don't want reading the other side to be a stressful experience any more than it has to. But I think that hurts us with some readers, at least, who say, oh, are these people serious right now? It's a really hard balance to strike between obviously not trivializing very hard topics, but also making it an approachable platform, making it an approachable type of uh, publication that somebody who may not be as well-versed in politics as some of our other readers can, can still uh, find value in. You've mentioned a few other enterprises kind of in your space, uh, living room conversations. And who else do you think aligns with the work that you do in the news ecosystem? 
there are a lot of great uh, initiatives that are sort of similar to us and take slightly different approaches. There's allsides.com. There's the team at Ground News that's doing really interesting work. There's more in common that put out the Hidden Tribes report. Uh, There's Harmony Labs that's uh, doing a lot of interesting data science work. So again, all of these uh, different initiatives are underfunded and need to be boosted in the national conversation. They're doing such great work that just isn't uh, being utilized to the full extent possible right now because of of a variety of factors. I mean, when the Aspen Institute hires Prince Harry, come on. (laughs) What what did they do? I'm not familiar with. Oh, the Aspen Institute is bringing on Prince Harry on their uh, panel or committee or or something on uh, misinformation. That probably will draw some attention to it. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? Huh. I've never been asked that before. I like that. Um, Something I didn't talk about that that I actually prepped for was just the things I've learned as an observer of the different patterns. It's not that there's a single Overton window anymore. There's two different Overton windows now, the left side and the right side, and they're having completely different conversations. But if you listen and look hard enough, you'll actually notice some interesting patterns. So on the left, we now understand the importance of diverse voices being in the room. So if you have a bunch of men in the room and they say they're not biased against women, we say, well, probably not, but you also don't understand the women's perspective. So you should probably have some women in the room. And same with minorities, if you only have white people in the room, even though they might not be biased or try to be biased and have the best intentions, they're not going to be able to speak to the community and speak for the community in a way that's most fruitful if they don't have anyone in that room with that perspective. Now, take that same principle and apply that to the lack of conservatives in newsrooms, right? So I've heard from a lot of media folks, oh, yes, well, we all do lean left, but we're not biased against conservatives. And it's like, well, you don't know that because you don't have any conservatives in the room. And then on the right, uh, you have this misunderstanding of what microaggressions are or the value of the lived experience. And they they sort of, you know, push away those talking points because it's coming from the left. But if you remind them, hey, remember that time you told me how hard it is to be a conservative in New York or how hard it is to be a conservative on college campus? Well, that's your lived experience. Remember that time you told me about this offhand comment that someone made about, you know, Trump that really hurt you? Well, that was a microaggression. So there are ways to bridge the gap. There are ways to uh, have these conversations if only you understand where they're coming from and can speak their language. A lot of people I talk to on the left, and I suspect it's mirrored on the right, have sort of given up on the other side. And they just feel like these people are too far gone. You know, they are steeped in a in a different world, an, an unpleasant world, a world of misinformation and wrong-headed notions that is irretrievable. Do you think that's true for some subset of America? What do you think? I think there are more and more people being pushed to the edges, right? You have more and more people being pushed to the, the far left and the far right. And part of that is because the center hasn't held. There isn't a strong center to bring them back into. And that's what we're trying to rebuild. At the same time, I I think, you know, uh, again, Twitter and Facebook 
gives us a false view of the world. There was just an op-ed in the New York Times about how there's a bad news bias, right? Um, where only the outrage is is being reported, et cetera. Uh, there's compelling data to show that Democrats and Republicans have just wild misconceptions of each other at the most basic level. So Republicans think the LGBTQ community is much larger than it is in the Democratic Party. Democrats think, you know, the wealthy is a much bigger proportion of the Republican Party. Even those basic stats, if they're getting those things wrong, what else are they getting wrong? And the answer is a lot. Um, we've done uh, Q&As with audiences in the past where we say, hey, send us your questions that you have for the other side. And it's astounding, the lack of understanding. And it's, half of what we do is just, you know, educating people to say, oh, you know, liberals don't actually want open borders or Republicans don't actually hate all immigrants. If you got the million dollars that you wanted and you built the software that you kind of dream about having, what would happen? What do you envision taking place at uh, the flip side? I mean, our goals are simultaneously ambitious, yet uh, very basic. We're not here to change minds. We're not here to convert people or even convince people of specific policy positions. It's literally helping each side understand the other and then not hate the other or not be afraid of the other so much. When I went to CPAC in 2018, I was genuinely scared. I did not know what to expect. And this is a year after, you know, having a Republican co-founder. Even still, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going into the lion's den. And everybody was was so genuine. And I was there the whole three days. I talked to anyone and everyone who gave me the time of day. I went to the after parties. I went to, you know, inside the back rooms. And my experience was wonderful. And then I saw the Daily Show, you know, camera crew show up and they walked straight up to that one person who had the big Trump hat and was wearing a ridiculous Uncle Sam costume. And, you know, other people already understood was not the most sane person ever. And that's what they interviewed and that's what they showed. And that's what liberals saw as, you know, CPAC. I'm just hoping to get people to, to see the other side as regular humans who just have, you know, different perspectives or a different set of facts. And I don't mean that in the alternative fact sense. I just mean in this literal sense of like, okay, there's a lot of data out there. You don't have all the data and the other person doesn't either. So why don't you learn from each other instead? Yeah, we do see the world quite differently, some groups from others. Why did you call it the flip side? Our vision has always been global in some sense and the flip side can serve uh, many different purposes. So someday we hope to have a flip side Canada, flip side Mexico, flip side Bangladesh, where I'm from. So you can flip from, you know, the country you live in to the country you're going to, to the country you follow because you're interested in the culture. Or you can flip from the national political realm to the regional or the state. So we like the idea of the flip side of the world, the flip side of politics, uh, what have you. So hopefully we can build a global empire with our humble beginnings. Well, I I see you don't want for ambition, which is a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That is true. That was Anafi Wahed. She's at theflipside.io. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.